Open your Bibles up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The focus of today's gathering this morning is on the church. Later we're going to partake of the Lord's table. After that we're going to have an all-church meeting. So in keeping with the theme today, I thought it would be appropriate to, to preach on the church. Now, some of you came in here and you're thinking Daniel chapter 9, and let me just tell you that it is probably my favorite text in all of Daniel, and so we're doing that next week, and I fought this whole week with myself if I should teach Daniel 9, but in the end of the day, I think this is what the Lord has for us as a church. Tonight, uh, this morning, I want to consider the covenant commitments of church membership. I want you to imagine that you're sitting at a baseball game, and of course, if you're sitting at a baseball game, you're at the Dodgers game, right? There you go, okay. So then you have your Dodgers hat on there, you've gone all out, you know, you even have your Dodgers jersey, and you paid the money to get the front row seats right behind the dugout, and you're ready for the game, you know, you've studied the other team, I think the Colorado Rockies are playing at some point here, like maybe even today, I don't remember what day that is, but maybe you've studied the other team and you know exactly what their strategy is going to be or what they typically do and what we should do as a team for the Dodgers. And it's the first inning and the coach is right down there. You can see him and he says, okay, who's up? And so you say, I'm ready. I'll go. You know, of course, your family looks at you and they roll their eyes, you know, and the coach may maybe even hear you and hears you and he turns around and he, you know, whatever. And, uh, you're not going to play, right? What's the difference between you and those players down there? Well, first of all, talent is a big one. <laughs> now, you might be very talented, so that's maybe not that far off, but not enough to be on the team. Otherwise, you'd be getting millions of dollars. But the, the clear, definite difference is that you are a spectator and they are players, and as a player, they are participating in the game. You are this, just there to watch, right? They have a contract to play. You're just in the stands, drinking your Coke, <laughs> eating your Dodger dog, and you're just there to watch. And as a spectator, you have no obligation to them. You, you could switch in the middle of the, the game. Maybe the Dodgers are losing. You know, heaven forbid that. But maybe they're losing, and you go, you know what? Maybe I'm going to be a Colorado Rockies fan now. So you pull out your Colorado Rockies hat, you know, and you switch teams right in the middle. I don't think that would be the case. But the point is you have, you have no commitments to that team except just don't get in the way. But for a player, they actually sign a contract. And that contract says they have certain commitments that they're supposed to keep. And there's consequences if they don't keep that. And any type of contract that you have establishes a relationship. It gives responsibilities, commitments, and then consequences or ramifications for breaking that contract. And a contract and a covenant are, are very similar things. Really, the, the biggest difference between a contract and a covenant is that a covenant is more intimate. And in a biblical covenant, it's made before God. So a contract or a covenant is a formal agreement. It brings two parties together into some type of relationship, gives them responsibilities. And so if you're a baseball player, you're, you have a relationship as a player on the team. You have certain commitments. And if you have a place of employment, you probably signed something, some kind of contract that establishes your relationship, certain agreements, and also certain conditions if you were to break that, consequences. If you're married, you stood at the altar with your spouse and you made a covenant before God with that person. And there's certain commitments that you're saying that you promise you will keep. So today we're going to talk about the covenant of church membership. The covenant of church membership. And the covenant of church membership is very similar to those other covenants and contracts. There's an established relationship. There's certain commitments that we make to each other. And there's consequences if we decide to walk away from that. The reality is many who attend church services are like those Dodgers fans. They're like those Dodgers fans when it comes to their relationship with the church, right? They put on the Sunday outfit, they bring their Bible, professional Bible, whatever, 
They attend the service. They are spectators. They maybe even come on the field once in a while and participate in some way. But really, in the end of the day, there's no contract. There's no covenant. There's no agreement. They could walk away at any time they want to. In some sense, they're there to watch. Or they, maybe you can act like a player sometimes or participate in some ways, but they can leave the field anytime they want to. The truth is they can walk away at any point. And so it's my goal today to get some of you out of the stands and get you to sign up for the team. And if not this team, if not this church, then to sign up for another church. And some of you, maybe that are on the bench, you're signed up, maybe to have you reconsider your commitments and your covenant with this church. So we're going to look at the book of 1 Corinthians. That's right, I said the book of 1 Corinthians. We're actually going to walk through the entire book this morning, but we're not going to read it all. And all God's people said amen to that, right? The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the local church in Corinth. The purpose of this letter was to call them to holiness and to renew their covenant commitments with the church. So first, what is the covenant commitment? What is the covenant relationship that those in the church are to have with each other? Now, we're going to just stay in 1 Corinthians. We could go through other books. We could look in Acts and see when people came to Christ, they were baptized, and then they were added to some type of list. There, there was some type of mutual commitments they made with each other and were put on a formal list with the church. We could go through other texts, but we're just going to look just in 1 Corinthians here this morning. So, so first, let's look at this. What is the covenant relationship of church Members, We're going to see this morning that church membership is an agreement between a particular community of saints to live in a covenant relationship with Christ and each other. Church membership is an agreement between a particular community of saints to live in a covenant relationship with Christ and each other. Look down in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2. The scripture says, to the church of God that is in Corinth. There's the local church. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Both their Lord and ours. So if you look in verse 2, you can see the local church. It says, he says, to the church of God in Corinth, the word church there is the Greek word ekklesia, which means ek is out, kaleo is called, so the called out ones. It refers to a local assembly. And literally what it means is there, there are these ones who are called out of the world to assemble as God's people. We find this word ekklesia 114 times in the New Testament and the overwhelming majority of the times, this word is used of a local assembly in a local a community, in a, in, a, in a city, a local assembly of believers. Now, sometimes when people think of the church, they think of this universal, invisible church. And that's true. Jesus said, I will build my church. He's speaking of his universal, invisible church. But actually, the New Testament's most common reference to the church is to a local group of people. The New Testament thinks of the church as a visible group of people gathered within local areas. But you actually do see this invisible church in the New Testament. In fact, you can see it right there in verse 2. Look at verse 2 where he says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, describing the local church, and then he expands out and he says, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the saints together with all those who in every place, that's the invisible universal church. And, and who is in that church? Well, it's all the saints in heaven, all over the earth, who are in Christ. So all the saints who are in heaven, dead, alive, who are in Christ. Now here's a question. How do you know who's in that universal church? How do we know on earth, I mean, we, don't, we can't see into heaven, but on earth, how do we know who's in that universal, invisible church? 
Well, Christ established local churches to visibly affirm those who were in the invisible church. In other words, it's God's design to use local churches like this to affirm those who are in the invisible church. When I came here to church, Pastor Roger, he told me that he was a part of a Native American community. He actually has Native American ancestry. Is that right? Now, I, didn't ask, I meant to find him before and ask him this, but it's the Chickasaw tribe. Is that correct? Okay. Now, there's a lot of people in our world who like to claim that they have some kind of ancestry like, like that. It actually helps you run for office, right? <laughs> some of those people aren't telling the truth. And, and so in order for you to know for certain if someone's a part of that <laughs> invisible tribe, if you want to say it that way, that group, there has to be some kind of documentation. In other words, you have to present some type of like certificate or list and say, yes, I'm a part of this tribe, and then we can believe you. Otherwise, we probably won't because you're running for office. But membership of a local church is kind of like that. It's, it's the visible way to say, yeah, this, these are the people who are a part of God's invisible church. So therefore, local churches like us, we must be very careful about who we bring into this church. We must make sure that they are saints, truly saints in the Lord. So what is a saint? He says in verse 2, he says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Saints means holy ones, are ones who are set apart unto God. And notice here in this verse, in verse 2, he says that we are sanctified, we're set apart unto God in Christ Jesus. And so if you look at this verse, you'll notice that that sanctified is passive. It's something happening to you. So God is the one who makes a person holy. God is the one who makes a person holy. You can't make yourself holy. You're not saved by works. You're saved by grace. So God is the one who makes a person holy. He does so by calling that person to salvation, by bringing that person's soul to life, by imputing to them the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And notice the ones called out to be holy are ones who also call upon the name of the Lord. Look in the verse two, he says, who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here you have faith in Christ. And the point is this, here you see this covenant relationship that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, you can see this down in verse 9. Look at verse 9, chapter 1, verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship. This is the Greek word koinonia. It's the idea of partnership of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And what is the public indication that this is true? Like, how do we tell people that this is true? How does the church tell everyone that this person right here is a person who has truly believed in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection? Well, if you're married, you have the covenant of marriage, what's the sign for that, that we show people that we're married? Right there, right? We wear a ring. If you're a Jewish male and you're in the old covenant, then you have the sign of circumcision. And for us, in the new covenant, the sign is baptism. And so you can see that down in verse 14. There's a lot of things going on in verse 14, but in general, these Corinthians believers confess Christ as their Lord, and then they were baptized. So the local church is to affirm an individual's salvation with baptism, and then to establish a new relationship with that believer, and that's a covenant of church membership. If you read through the New Testament, and you read particularly through 1 Corinthians here, you'll see these different terms that help us to understand that this community of a local church is actually a community that lives in covenant. They live in some type of agreement. They have certain kind of responsibilities. In fact, look down in chapter 1, verse 6. He says, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Now, as we go through this book, what we're going to see is we're going to see that Those words right there, among you throughout this letter. And the among you are people who are publicly committed to Christ and people know who those people are. Those in the church know who those among you are. They are a defined group of people that make up the local church. In fact, we can see these words 15 times in 1 Corinthians. In fact, look down in 1 Corinthians 1.10. 1 Corinthians 1.10, Paul appeals to these 
These people, this church, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. Now, that's hard to do with anyone. And that there be no divisions among you, but, the, but that you are... De- but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So how do you have these people who are among you agree? That's because they're unified with the same purpose and with the same commitments. And so what are those commitments? What are those commitments that we make? Well, first we're gonna see that we are to be committed to prioritizing assembling together under the ministry of the word. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. Paul writes, for the Jews demand a sign. Signs are miracles, they're supernatural works. Let me just pause here and say this is where a lot of churches are today. They, they, they promise signs, miracles. They try to attract people with that kind of sensationalism and promise that if you just believe, if you just really believe, then you can have a healing or you can have some kind of special sign that God will give you. Of course, give some money to, as well, you know, put that in there. But some people design their churches in that way. And also, Greeks seek wisdom. The Greeks valued intellectual puzzles. They valued the philosophies of Plato and Aristotle. And and honestly, many churches today kind of have this as their ministry model, right? They have these interesting talks they want to have with people. They throw in these psychological applications from modern thinkers. Of course, they put some verses up there as well. And the world is full of these kind of churches that try to attract people with this, this, this wisdom of the world or maybe, on the other hand, the sensationalism of, of spirituality. But look at verse 23. He says, but we preach Christ. Can I just tell you, preaching isn't the most popular thing in this world. People think what we're doing right here is pretty foolish. I've actually had people basically say to me, we spend too much time with a guy up there speaking out of the Bible. Like, maybe you should include some other things. That would probably bring more people to the church. But no, that's not what Christ has commanded us to do. We preach Christ. It's a stumbling block to Jews. It's a folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, those are Christians, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So one of the covenant responsibilities that we have is to prioritize this time right here where we sit under the ministry of the word. The ministry of the word is the place where we receive the power of God, right? The word of God brings souls to life. The word of God sustains our life. So this is one of the most important times of our week. In fact, look down at verse uh, verse 18. You can see this as well. The ministry of the word is called the word of the cross, And notice who it's for, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. So those who are unbelievers, they they consider what we're doing as foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Notice here, I said we are to prioritize assembling together under the ministry of the word. And that primarily is preaching. We preach expositionally, not really technically doing that this morning, but that's the typical way we do preaching here in the church. We let God's word speak to us. But also turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians 14, we see other ways that the word of God ministers to us. In our services, we do everything sourced from the word of God. When we pray, We pray the word. That means we consider what God says about himself in the word of God. We consider his promises in the word of God and we pray those to him. When we sing, we don't just just read words on the screen. Those come from God's word. That's the truth of God's word. Look at verse 15. 1 Corinthians 14, 15. He says, what, this is considering the worship of God in an assembly like this. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Notice praying and singing here is done with my spirit and my mind. You can't separate the two. 
You know, sometimes in churches, some people are just waiting for the feeling, right? They're just sitting there where the song's going. It's like, okay, I'm just going to wait so I can feel it in my spirit. And some people, they like to read the words and like to consider the words up there. And they just like to think about those words and, and consider them in their mind. But actually, that's not worship. Worship is both. Worship is considering the words of God and responding. And so there should be some type of thought about the words. If you're just singing a song, you don't think about the words, then you're not worshiping God. And also, if you're not responding with some type of, of spiritual response, then you're not worshiping God. So we should be thinking about the words, and we should be emotionally moved by it. If you're not emotionally moved by the word of God through song or through prayer, then there's probably something wrong there. You probably should consider where your heart is. We are not spectators, right? We're not just here listening, you know, sitting in the back, just wondering what's going to be the next thing. We are here to commit, to engage, and to participate. So we preach the word, we pray the word, we sing the word, we read the word. Ephesians chapter 2, the whole chapter, what do you think about that? That's commanded. We're supposed to do that as a church. And we're to give to support the word. In fact, look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Look in 1 Corinthians 16. The part of prioritizing the ministry of the word is giving to support it. 1 Corinthians 16.1, now concerning the collection of, for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, that's when you gather as a church, each one of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. So here Paul lays out this, this principle really of first fruits. And that's the idea that as God prospers you, you are to give back to the Lord. Give it the first fruits of your increase. And where should that go? Well, it should go to the church for the purpose of supporting and spreading the word of God. So let me ask you, do you, do you prioritize the assembling of God's people under the ministry of the word. You know, is, is this right here, is this your first priority? You're like, oh, what do I got going on on Sunday? Ah, uh, there's a game going on. Uh, should I do that? Yeah, maybe I should do that this Sunday. Oh, no, no, wait, 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 no. My first priority on Sunday is the Lord's day. So this time is a time for the Lord. Oh, I got, I got a family event. Maybe I should go to the family event. Oh, no, wait, no, this is the priority. It's gathering with God's people. Do you prioritize by participating? You know, when we say open your Bibles, do you actually open your Bibles, right? Do you actually get your Bible out and look at it? When we do scripture reading, when we do preaching, do you actually like write notes down and say, okay, this is what I'm learning. How can I apply this to my life? Are you a part of it? You know, are you just sitting in the stands eating your popcorn? Or are you actually out there saying, I'm a part of this team. I'm, I want to play. And I, now the last question is not one pastors are supposed to ask, I guess they say, but are you giving? Are you giving? You know, I could care less about your money. It's not about your money, Paul or Peter told Simon the magician, may your silver perish with you. And I feel the same way. It's not about your money. It's actually about your obedience. And so, are you prioritizing assembling together under the ministry of the word? And then second, the next community, or the next covenant relationship, I'm sorry, the next covenant responsibility we have is to unify together in holiness and Christian fellowship. To unify together in holiness and Christian fellowship. Would you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10? I want to walk through some scripture to help you see the problems this church faced. 1 Corinthians 1, 10. A lot of times people think about a local church and they think, man, those, that church has a lot of problems. Well, let me introduce you to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 to this church here, the Corinthian church. He says in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you. Here again, you see this idea of the among you, but that you be united in the same 
mind and the same judgment. This Corinthian church was not united. They were fighting with each other. There were arguments. There were people in the church suing each other. And the source of their fighting were their selfish desires. Look down in chapter 3, verse 3. You can see in this text, and as you read on, you can see that they were fighting. There was jealousy. He says there's jealousy in verse 3. Jealousy and strife among you. And it's because they were immature Christians. They were, they were living according to the flesh. In fact, look down in verse 16. After he speaks about this strife, he said, God has called us to holiness. 3.16, 1 Corinthians 3.16, the Bible says, Do you not know that you, and this is in the plural, so this is speaking about the church, this local church. Do you know that you are God's temple? So, so the local church is like a temple where the spirit of God dwells. So this building is not the church. I know a lot of times we say that, or sometimes we say this is a sanctuary. This is not the church. This is not a sanctuary. Like we are the temple. The sanctuary is within us because the spirit of God dwells within us. So look at verse 16. He says, and that God's spirit dwells in you. So he was teaching that God's holy temple is the church. Therefore, we should be holy. There should be no strife or arguments or dissensions among us. And in fact, he's so serious about that. Look what verse 17 says. If anyone destroys God's temple, in other words, if you live in an unholy way and you cause divisions and arguments within the church, what is the repercussions of that? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. What does that mean that God will destroy him? Well, I don't really know, frankly, but I don't want to find out. We are God's holy temple. And one aspect of unity is that of holiness. We are to unify as God's holy people. We are set apart from the world. That doesn't mean we're better than the world. What it means is that God has sanctified us. He's made us his holy people. So we need to live that way. We need to live that way. And it's so serious that God will take care of it if we don't. In fact, we see this with Ananias and Sapphira, right? They go into the church and they say, hey, look how much we've given. Of course, they were lying. And on the spot, God strikes them dead. And that was really the first example of church discipline executed by God. And I don't think he does that that dramatically today, but it definitely spoke volumes to that church. In fact, look in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There was a man in the church who was a part of this covenant community. He was living in an immoral life. He was sleeping with his stepmother. So look at 1 Corinthians 5, 1. The Bible says it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Who's the among you? It's the church. And of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, those who worship idols. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? In other words, you, you've tolerated this sin. Maybe he was a big giver. Maybe he was an important person in the community. Maybe he was a very likable person. And so they said, ah, oh, what's, what's the big deal? You know, it's... And he says, you're being proud. You actually should be crying about this man's sin. And so what does he say to do in verse... Too, he says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. In this text, Paul uses this among you to distinguish the local church in Corinth from the local Corinthian unbelievers. So there's two groups of people, the unbelievers in Corinth and the believers who are in this covenant community, this covenant relationship. And what, what I want you to see as we go through this, he doesn't give other options. He doesn't give the option of regular attenders. He doesn't give the option of those who have church at home. He doesn't give the option of those who want to, you know, when it's really popular, go to God speak. And when John MacArthur is preaching, go to John MacArthur's church. Or, you know, he doesn't give those options. What he actually says, there's two groups of people. Those who are in a community of a local church and those who are unbelievers. Those who are inside, those who are outside. Look at verse 4. He says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ... And my spirit is present, so the church is gathered with the power of our Lord Jesus. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. 
So this man was a part of this covenant community. He broke that covenant by living an unholy life. They, call, they were to call him to repent. And if he didn't, they were to remove him from their fellowship. Why were they do that? I mean, was this a very loving thing to do? You look at that and you say, is that very loving to do? Why were they to do that? Well, he says there, verse five, he says, deliver this one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. What is he saying here? He's saying, listen, let him live his life as an unbeliever with the unbelievers. In other words, if, if you are following the desires of your heart, you're following Satan and he's saying, release him to Satan and treat him as an unbeliever. In fact, go a step further don't just treat him as an unbeliever, but don't even have fellowship with him. This is what we call church discipline. Some call it church restoration. You can read more about this in Matthew 18, where Jesus gives instructions on this. The goal, though, is what? What is the goal at the end of verse 5? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. It's actually a loving action because we want this person to turn from their sin and turn back to the Lord. In fact, what we see in 2 Corinthians is that's what this man did. Look at verse 9. What does removal look like? I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So who are those people? He said, well, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Like we're not called to be isolationalists. Like some people think that way. They think, oh, I'm a, I'm a Christian, so I'm not gonna work with someone who's a homosexual. Like I couldn't be, I couldn't, I can't live next to a Muslim. That's actually unbiblical thinking. Like we are to live in the world. And so if you think that way, stop. <laughs> think the way of the scripture. We're to live in the world, but we're not to be of the world. We're to live as God's holy people who have a covenant with the local church that they're a part of. And so how are we to live in accordance to people who are professing to be believers but they live as unbelievers. What do we do about that? So we have people within the church who are in this covenant community with us. The other people outside of the church, we're to give them the gospel, we're to, to evangelize them, we, we're to live alongside them and, and shine as God's lights. But what about those people who profess to be a part of the church, but they actually live like unbelievers? What does he say to do? Look at verse 11. He says, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, listen to this, not even to eat with such a one. So you treat him like an unbeliever and you go a step further and you actually don't even have fellowship with him. Unbelievers, we're to have fellowship with, we're to actually give them the gospel. We're to live life with them so that we can give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. But those who profess to be believers and actually live like unbelievers, we're not to even associate with them, not to even eat with them. We're to call them to repentance. It says in verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Outsiders are people outside the church, outside the covenant relationship of the church. Is, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? In other words, there's this accountability that we are to have. We're to, in some sense, judge each other, each other help us help each other, I should say, to become more like Christ. Then verse 13, God judges those outside, so what are we to do? Purge the evil person from among you. So one of the commitments we make as a church together is we are to live together in holiness. And when we're asking other brothers and sisters in this room to come after us, if we follow the, the ways of Satan, if we follow our own flesh, our own desires, we're asking other brothers and sisters, don't let us do that. Come after us. Bring us back to Christ. Help us. Show us our sin. Call us to follow Jesus. So in the covenant of church membership, we are establishing this relationship and then we're committing to unify together in holiness and Christian fellowship. I heard a pastor tell a story once of how he talked to a lady. This lady says, I will never become a member of a church. And so this pastor said to her, you know, why is that? You know, why, why, do you, why would you say that? And she said, well, they're just full of a bunch of vipers, right? Churches are full with a bunch of vipers. All these churches, I'm not going to be a member of a church like that. So, you know, she would attend church once in a while, but she's like, I'm not going to be a member of a church like that. And he said, you know, I think, I think you're right, actually. I think churches are full of vipers. But wouldn't you say people on the outside, don't you think the outside is full of vipers as well? 
the world has a bunch of vipers in it. She's like, yeah, I guess I could probably see that. He says, really, really the difference, I think, is the church is that we know we're vipers. <laughs> we believe that Christ has redeemed us and has saved us from being like that. But we, we are committed as a church to pointing out those who are vipers and asking people to show us when we are acting like vipers. And in a biblical church, we remove those who continue to act like vipers. And the truth, the truth is, this is what we're talking about here. We need each other to show each other when we're acting like vipers, right? Sometimes we act like vipers. <laughs> and we need someone to say, you're kind of acting like that. You need to follow Christ. Be what Christ has made you to be. He responded to this man, he said, this, this lady. He says, ma'am, if you would want to help us out with that, we would invite you to slither on into the church. <laughs> so we want to be united as God's holy people. In fact, what's interesting is the Lord's table is a ceremony that gives us the opportunity to testify that we are living in holiness. Go back to verse 6, chapter 5, verse 6. And here you see the celebration of the Lord's table. 1 Corinthians 5, 6 says, your boasting is not good. You're proud. In other words, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So he's using leaven here as an illustration of sin. So he says in verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven. Cleanse out the sin from your church that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. God really has made you holy, so be holy. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. What's the festival? It's the Lord's table. Let us celebrate the Lord's table, not with the old leaven, so not with sin in our midst, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. At the Lord's table, we eat unleavened bread. We have these little wafers in here that are definitely unleavened. There's not a lot of flavor to them, and I'm sorry about that. Hopefully, we can get back to something that's a little bit, that actually has taste. But the idea is there's no leaven in that, and it symbolizes that we are a holy congregation. We're a holy community, community unified in sincerity and truth. In other words, there's no, there's no malice or evil among us in this group. This is one of the reasons why I believe the Lord's table, let me say this and please listen to me. That's one reason I believe the Lord's table is for the members of the church. Now we don't restrict the Lord's table to just members. I'm going to say these things and repeat them. We don't restrict the Lord's table to just members. We keep it open to those maybe who are members of other churches and are visiting for some reason. Or maybe someone who's a prospective member and they're looking to join our church. But the purpose of the Lord's table is twofold. Number one, it's a public celebration of Christ's death. So it's a public celebration of Christ's death. But also, it's a testimony that we are unified as a covenant community. It's a testimony that we are unified as a covenant community and there is no broken relationships within our covenant community. And let me state the obvious. There are some of us in here, some people in here, who are not members of the church. So what I'm not saying is that we are forbidding you from taking the Lord's table. Did you get that? I'm not saying when we take the Lord's table, you're forbidden. I'm not saying that. You can take the Lord's table if you meet the requirements. You're a believer. You're walking with the Lord. You want to remember his death and worship. But here's, let me, let me be clear because here's what I am saying. If you're not a church member, then the Lord's table can't fully mean to you what Christ intended it to mean. Let me say that again. If you're not a church member, then the Lord's table can't fully mean to you what Christ intended it to mean for his church. The Lord's table is a time to testify and enjoy our covenant commitment we have together as a church. In fact, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You can see this again. There's a lot of disunity in the Corinthian church. He talks a lot about unity and holiness. And actually, interesting, talks a lot about the Lord's table. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, look down in verse 16. He again addresses unity around the Lord's table. Verse 16, the cup of blessing, this is speaking of the Lord's table, that we bless, 
Is it not a participation? This is, again, the word koinonia. This is fellowship. Is it not a time of fellowship in the blood of Christ? In other words, the, the Lord's table is a time for us to fellowship with God and with each other. We're testifying that we have this fellowship with God, that we have it with each other. He says, the bread that we break, is it not participation? Is it not fellowship in the body of Christ? Verse 17, because there is one bread, and who is that one bread? That's Jesus. We who are many, those are the local church members, are one body, that's the local church. For we all partake, that's, that's koinonia, that's fellowship. We all participate together of the one bread. So the Lord's table is a time for us to testify that we are in unity of fellowship with one another as a covenant community. Then look down in chapter 11, 1 Corinthians 11. Look at verse 17. He says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, here again you see this gathering of the local church. When you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together, so notice these coming together, coming together, come together as a church, a local assembly, I hear that there are divisions among you. Here's the church again. I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. You know, when you read something like that, it might shock you, but you know, sometimes people get bothered when they hear about problems in a church. The question is not if we're gonna have problems with each other, right? We all are sinners saved by grace, those who are in the covenant community of the church. We're sinners saved by grace. We still have that sin bent, right? So we are gonna sin against each other. The question is not if we have problems in the church. The question is, what are we gonna do about it? You know, are we gonna love each other enough to talk to the other person about it? Are we gonna examine our own hearts and make sure that we're living in a reconciled relationship with the church? Why can't we have strife and division in our covenant community? Look down in verse 20. He says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. In other words, they're all a bunch of self-centered people in the church. All they care about is themselves. So not really celebrating the unity of the Lord's table Verse 22, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Then he goes into explaining the Lord's table. Look down in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. What is he saying here? The Lord's table is this time where we are to gather in unity and therefore we are to examine ourselves. And if we are not living in unity with the church, if we're not fulfilling our biblical commitments that God has given to us through this covenant we have with church members, then we should repent of that. We should confess that and ask the Lord for forgiveness. Maybe ask someone in the church for forgiveness and then go into this time of worship, look, look at verse 28. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and, drink without, and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that is why, and this is very serious. Again, he talks about the seriousness of this. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. I asked earlier, what does that mean that God will destroy those who try to destroy his church? Well, I think that's some answer right there. That's somewhat of an answer. And so we are to unify as God's church. And one of the ways we testify of doing that is around the Lord's table. And then we're going to fly through the next ones. Don't be concerned. We are to commit to serve one another in love and edification. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 
In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul illustrates the, the local church as if they're a body. He compares the local church to a body. Look at verse 14. He says, for the body, speaking of the church, the local church, does not consist of one member, but many. Now just pause and think about that. What, you know, all of you are sitting here. You have bodies. I have a body. There's one body. There's many members. A number of years ago, some of you don't know this, but a number of years ago, I was working after um, I had finished my first master's up in Wisconsin. I was working at a granite shop, and I cut my thumb off, and that really hurt. You know, when you cut off one of your members, it really hurts. And, uh, and the point is, is that all of our members are important, right? And what's the purpose of our members? We, we serve each other. Like if this, yesterday, my foot really hurt. I really hurt my foot, and so I started rubbing my foot. So my hand and my eyes served the foot. And so that, in the same way as church members, we are all a part of this local body of Christ called Lighthouse. And if you're a member, God has gifted you uniquely to be able to serve the church. In fact, look down in verse 25. He says in verse 25, that there may be no division in the body. In other words, the foot just can't walk away, right? The foot is attached to the body. It's, there's a commitment there. But that the members may have the same care for one another. In other words, we are to serve each other and we're to do it because we care for each other. We do it in love. In fact, look at chapter 13. You hear chapter 13 typically in weddings and people read these and you think about, you know, this man, this woman that are going to get married and but actually, the context here is the local church. When you read through 1 Corinthians chapter 13, don't think about that person you're about to marry. You know, oh, you know, love is patient and love is kind. Think about the local church. I mean, do you know who it's easy to love? Well, first of all, yourself, right? It's easy to love yourself. It's easy to love the people that you want to be around. It's easy to say, I like those people. I'll invite in my house. <laughs> but I don't know about those people, so I'm not going to invite them over. You know what's who it's, who's hard to love? That is the church. There's people in the church, maybe some of the people that you don't even know or maybe that you wouldn't necessarily even have fellowship with, but we're called to love them. We're called to serve them. Look down in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26. It says, what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation. And this is what his point is. When you come together as a church, let all things be done for building up. In other words, what we should do is think about the people who are committed to us and whom we're committed to, and then we should serve them in love and seek to spiritually build them up. So, Probably good for us to ask those who are church members in here, are you serving the church? Are you praying for each other? You know, are, you, are you looking at people in, in your covenant community saying, okay, I want to invite that person to my house so I can show hospitality to them? On Sundays, we need teachers, we need nursery workers, we need kids volunteers, volunteers. we need people to go visit visitors who have come to our church we need people to, ser to serve. So the question is, are you serving? How are you serving? And I guess, I think another thing we don't think about a lot of times is, are you allowing people to serve you? A lot of times we think about, okay, this is how I'm supposed to serve. But have you thought about this way that, how can I allow people to serve me? This past summer, we had some um, guys that were teaching the class in here. And this next fall, we're going to talk about this a little bit later. We have some people teaching classes and you can think about it this way. Well, those people are using their gifts to teach and to, to minister, but are you allowing them to minister to you? When you look at that, do you think, oh, they're going to use their gifts. I want to invite them into my life to minister to me. That's actually what the church does. The idea of showing up at church, sitting and listening and going home is not a part of the commitment of the local church. And the last one we're not going to spend a lot of time on at all, really, is to follow the leadership of the elders when Paul wrote this letter, he had just left this church about a year and a half, two years previous to that. And so he gave many instructions to them. And we could go through different texts in 1 Corinthians. We're not going to look at that. But just to leave it right here, and that is God calls us as a covenant community to follow the leadership of his elders. 
So here we are, Lighthouse Bible Church. We're on the field, right? It's the bottom of the ninth. Where are you at? Now, are you still in the stands, eating your popcorn, gonna go home? I hope and pray that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you wanna follow Jesus Christ, I hope that you will sign up for a team. You say, what do you mean by that? I hope you'll be a member of a church. I think it's biblical. I think it's obedient. I believe it's obedient. And if you're not gonna be a member of our church, that's okay. We're okay with that. But please go be a member somewhere, right? Because what we want more than anything else is for you to follow Jesus. And so sign up for a team. Maybe you're on the bench. Maybe you've already said, I'm, I'm signed up, Pastor Ben. So the question is, are you in the game? You know, maybe you're feeling tired. Maybe you honestly just want to give up. So let me encourage you to renew your covenant commitments to the church. Let's ask God for grace to help us take the next step. And so the question I think to ask is this, what is that step for you? What's that step for you? What's the step that Christ wants you to take? The Bible says, as you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And so that means you might need to take another step spiritually here this morning. I'll give you a handout. I would like you to turn to the back of this handout On the back, I give some diagnostic questions for church members. Honestly, I guess everyone can, can take this if they want to, if you're a member of a church somewhere. And I would counsel you to walk through this and answer these questions. Am I living a life of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord? Have I obeyed Christ by being publicly baptized? Am I prioritizing the Sunday gathering above all things? Do I pay attention, take notes, and seek to apply the Sunday morning sermon? Do I sing with the church, with my mind and my spirit? Am I faithfully giving of my first fruits to the church? Am I living a life set apart to the Lord in holiness? Am I unified with those in the church? Is there anything between another believer and me? Am I faithfully, sacrificially serving the church? Am I praying for other members? Am I spiritually building up other members? Do I honor the elders and follow their leadership? I think these are application questions for us to consider. Listen, no one in this room can answer perfectly yes on all those, right? No one's asking you to be a perfect Christian. What Christ is asking of us is to be an obedient Christian and to take the next step spiritually. Let's pray. I'm gonna ask the music team to come on up. We're gonna go into a time of taking the Lord's table. Before we do that, let me encourage you in this room to consider your own heart. The scripture says that we are to examine ourselves. Maybe you're a person in here and you say, wow, there's a lot about the church. Sounds like a lot of commitments. <laughs> like, listen, the most important thing for you is to know for certain that you have eternal life. That's the most important thing. The Bible says that we can have eternal life if we turn from our ideas, from our own sin, our ways, and we believe in Jesus Christ. And so if you are not a believer in Christ, let me encourage you, let me call you to come to Christ this morning. Would you pray with me as we conclude?